Podcasts are the fastest growing form of media. I know firsthand that the process for sharing a podcast is difficult. Kim Hansen, CEO of Signal FM, is building software to solve this problem. Kim explained the challenges as well as the solutions they're working on to improve the technology podcasters have access to. To learn more about the topics of the shows, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Kim Hansen, CEO and co-founder of Signal FM, is joining us today from Vancouver. Kim, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Americans listen to over 21 million hours of podcasts per day. Signal FM is working on interesting challenges in the podcasting space. I want to start by talking about podcasts. Why are podcasts hard to discover? Right now, you want to share something with someone on the internet, right? You clip it out and you share it to them. I'm going to paste this little snippet into my Twitter or my Facebook or whatever it is. That's very hard to do with a podcast, right? So say that someone is listening to this lovely podcast, for instance, and someone says something smart. Oh, my God, I really want to share that with my friend Joe. So one, how do you share it within most podcast software? And two, even if you do figure out how to share it, Typically, Joe's going to get hit in the face with a half hour of MP3. And because Joe is, you know, also smart and busy, that's a very risky proposition for him. So he's probably not going to click. And, you know, you just wasted your time sharing it with him. And that's because audio is inherently unlinkable, right? The web is made of links. How do you link audio? Well, basically, you can't. And so that's sort of the problem we're, we're working on, actually. Yes, and that's true. The way I share podcasts is via email, and then I put some snippets of, oh, they talked about this, like at the end, mm -hmm. which I think you will like, but I agree, it's a totally broken process. Right, yeah. And what podcasts do you like to listen to? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I actually just got introduced to your podcast through our mutual friend, Jeff Meyerson. Um, who is ironically interviewing Hillel Fould, who created the software that we're using to record this right now. So I think he's interviewing him tomorrow or something. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's all one big sort of happy family. I'll just go down the list, shall I? Yes. So .NET Rocks, that's my friend Richard's podcast. I only really like the Geek Oats episode, though. Sorry, Richard. 50 Things Made the Modern Economy. Um, that's sort of the BBC. That's, um, what's his name? Tim Hartford, who is occasionally on Planet Money. 99% Invisible, of course. Acquired FM, that's Ben Gilbert's podcast. They're out of Seattle. Beards, Cats, and Video Game Audio. It's an incredibly well-produced podcast about just audio and how to do things with audio. Wow, I never heard that one. Yeah, you got to listen to it. I'll send it to you. Um, Bullseye, Jesse Thorne. Um, Chapo Trap House, Alex Goldman made me listen to that. Mm -hmm. um, all the Gimlet stuff, basically every little thing. 538, Fresh Air, Friday Night Comedy, also to the BBC. One of our co-founders produces a podcast called Good Enough to Air, which is about TV shows that uh, only had one season. It's, it's pretty good. Um, Hanselman uh, has a podcast, The Hanselman It's Podcast. I was on that once. Mm -hmm. Kermode and Mayo's Film Review. 
I've been listening since 2005, which is basically the first year that podcasts started to exist. Yes, and I want to ask you about that. It's pretty early on. I started listening two years ago, two or three years ago. How have you seen this space change since then, content-wise and production-wise? So at least in the first few years, I wouldn't have been really listening with an editorial mind, probably. Like, you know, in 2005, I was creating video games. I remember when in 2008, the Planet Money, it's a radio show, but I listened to it as a podcast. I remember when that spun up and it was so much more dense and relative to my normal life than I was used to. And of course, you know, 99% Invisible comes out and it just completely changes the way that we think about podcasts, um, at least for me. The production value is amazing. Um, I actually, I would say that 99PI, very much from my perspective, so, you know, I'm not omnipresent or anything, but 99PI was probably the first time that we saw a Radiolab-type take on something that was intended as a podcast first. And then, of course, you know, the last couple of years, the format has just exploded, and we're just starting to see... Um, so much more variation, so much, uh, you know, the storytelling podcast, Serial, The Laps, um, Black Tapes, Tannis, all that stuff. It's such a great medium for storytelling, but it seems like that that format really only came into its own maybe since like 2012, say, and really exploding over the last couple of years. And we're starting to see, like now with the Pod Save America stuff, um, actually, one really interesting thing that's happened over the last, bit, like, I would say probably the last 18 months, um, is that we're starting to see celebrities from other formats use podcast as a bridge between tentpole content. And what I mean by that is, for instance, when Stephen Colbert, just before they released the new Late Show? Is it Tonight Show? <laughs> yes, I, I always confuse those. The Night Show on which Stephen Colbert is, they had a podcast um, for the three months leading up to it. It was fabulous. It was so good. I wish they were still doing it. But the idea is, is that what you want to do is you want to um, keep your audience engaged with your brand between producing these massively expensive media objects, right? So... It, it worked great. Um, Hillary Clinton had a podcast for a bit where everything happened. Max Linsky of the Long Form Podcast. Yes. We're also seeing authors, for example, Malcolm Gladwell. Tim Ferriss has a pretty popular podcast. For sure. He's probably the first to do this. And, I mean, podcast from experience, it's not cheap to produce. You know this. But ex at least accessible for a single person or, or you know, a, a, a two-person team to put out something that sounds reasonable, right? Yes. Let's talk now about Signal FM. What problem is Signal FM solving in the podcasting space? Well, so to go back to the links problem and really the, the sort of accessibility of podcasts, it's all down to being able to seek effectively within the audio. You have to know what's in there. I actually don't remember the percentage. I think it's something like um, something like 83% of podcast is spoken word rather than music, but you know, don't, don't quote me on that. For that 83% or whatever it is, it's spoken word, which is to say it's words, <laughs> right? The, the most obvious way to 
um, drill down into that content is, surprise, as words. Now, um, concurrently with the sort of massive explosion we've seen in podcast over the last couple of years, we've seen this this crazy uh, uptick in the quality of automated speech to text. And that's great for us. From personal experience, we deal with I think we've we've used pretty much every major speech to text solution that there is and uh, spun up variants of our own. It's good if you're one person from the Midwest who's a man <laughs> and has no background audio playing, um, no pl- clapping, no music, and also if you speak quite clearly. Optimally, you are Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen transcribes beautifully and. Uh, I put that down to a lot of the work having been done at MIT, but beyond, it kind of goes down from there. Now that's okay um, because there's plenty of stuff that you can do to start cleaning it up, right? And so what we're doing is we're tackling that problem. How do you speech to text a podcast such that you can um, be watching that transcript play as a podcast is playing and treat it just like, like any other text, right? Clip it out, send it out. Whomever you send it to can read and listen at the same time. And, oh, yeah, I am interested in this, rather than having to confront this massive lump of audio. It's quite effective. Um, The tech is challenging, for sure. Yes, and you mentioned you tried several solutions for speech-to-text. And then after this, there's a cleanup step. What does the cleanup step look like? Is this crowdsourcing, or are, are you looking at the audio or... Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of everything, and we've got a bit of a wish list, too. We're a small team still, so it's not like we have 30 data scientists to throw at this. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there, there there is crowdsourcing involved, and once you have that crowdsourced feedback, you can take it and feed it back into the neural nets to train up a corpus, which is just a grouping of audio, in this case, probably a podcast, and become better at transcribing that podcast. There's also some work to be done... So basically, when you run speech-to-text, for the most part, what you'll get back is the words themselves, um, some kind of confidence as to the accuracy of those words, and the timing for those words. So the timestamps for each individual word. Of course, once you crowdsource and correct it, then the timing's all messed up, right? Like, blown away, basically. So you have to actually rerun it through speech-to-text, excuse me, to retime it so you can maintain your your one-to-one correlation between audio and text. And looking at crowdsourcing audio transcriptions, do you look for native speakers? Well, it's kind of like you don't have a choice, as a matter of fact, right? There's podcast audio. That's how it is. No, I mean for the transcriptions. For example, English is not my first language. Oh, I gotcha. I could transcribe. Or maybe if I'm listening to another Mexican speaking in English the way they structure the sentence in English, I understand, oh, they're trying to say this because that's the way we talk in Spanish. So I'm just curious about the people doing some of those transcriptions, if it matters or if you've looked at it. Uh, It does matter, but actually that's not our ultimate goal. And the idea is, is that podcast listeners themselves are crazy loyal. We know that from studies like the the Edison folks have done numerous studies about this mid-roll and the idea is to leverage the listeners themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they are native speakers, maybe they're not. But my guess is, and, and we're starting to see this proved out, 
if you're loyal enough to, you know, transcribe a podcast, your transcription is going to be pretty good. In the Signal FM blog, I read that at the beginning, you were working on building a place online where users could just simply be speaking to each other and this could be recorded. And then you and your team went back to the drawing board and came up with a very interesting way to share a podcast. Can you describe in more detail what this is? So basically, if you want to look under the hood, we take the transcription and we throw it onto a page <laughs> that is a podcast player. So it's, you know, intended to be just like any other podcast player, basically, except for rather than, say, podcast album art, you see the words of the podcast. Kind of like a sing-along type of... Yeah, and the words that I am speaking will animate as I am speaking them. And effectively, it looks like medium.com, for instance, if medium had some audio play behind it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, this isn't hooked up for public consumption yet, but again, very like medium. The idea is that you can select snippets of text and pump them out to a Twitter or a Facebook as audiogram videos. So audiogram is actually an open source project out of WNYC, and they're sort of like tech cohort. Basically, it's a video that has a little waveform in it that bounces around at the time of the music. And then what we've done is we've actually uh, modified them quite heavily to also have our transcripts inside of them. So effectively, what you share out looks like a kinetic text video. Once you've selected that, again, just like Medium, that selection can be used in a social way. So if you and I are connected, say, on Twitter, for instance, I, I will see that, hey, look, you selected this. That's interesting. Maybe I'm interested in it, too. Or you can tweet about it and other people can see the quote or the phrase that the person said in the podcast. Right, right. And I, I really like this idea because I think the first time that I saw it was reading the Kindle If you get a Kindle book, you can see the highlights and how many people highlighted something. So you could see, oh, 2,000 people highlighted the sentence. So it's pretty cool to, to see when you agree with someone or you think, oh, I didn't give that sentence much thought. And you and some of the members of Signal FM team come from a gaming background and wor having worked in this industry. How has this influenced in the development of Signal FM? Oh, um, quite happily, I imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, video games, um, trading video games is one about delighting your players, basically, to sort of use a cliche, right? You're looking to create joy in an extended and repeatable manner. And you're looking to tell stories and provide rewards for engagement and on and on. And It also makes you really, really unwilling to accept the limits of technology. <laughs> like, I kind of remember back in the Xbox days, like Xbox 360, when multi-threading was just coming in. And my friend Brent was the multi-threading guy who was in charge of getting multi-threading working. And I swear to God, the man sat in a room for a year and just sort of like pushed bit codes around, right? Wow. And I, I was working um, as the QA lead at the time. So, you know, one of the things that I did was sort of grease the wheels when it came to getting software out of the door sort of thing, right? 
and I sat with them through it and it was painful. It was so painful, but we, you know, he did it. We did it. The team did it. And that kind of stuff really, you know, someone says, well, this is going to be hard. And you say, how hard? And within Signal FM, there have also been games developed, right? Um, between the team. So uh, I was on Mass Effect 1 and 2. Kelly was on Mass Effect 3. Um, he and I also worked on a few different indie games, a music-based fighter. Actually, what, what I meant was the, because I saw that due to this background, the team built some little games. Yeah, that was actually really interesting. So, yeah, what we did was we, t we took little snips of audio and um, exposed them as uh, against different what we're calling recipes for speech-to-text and just started to, with the intent of seeing which ones players preferred, which is different than being right because the correctness of speech-to-text is actually a little difficult to pin down because there's lots of different definitions for correct. For instance, I could get every single word that you and I are saying completely 100% correct, but if I don't differentiate between the speakers, if I don't say this is Kim, for instance, it's really terrible to read. Like, human beings cannot read it. Oh, I see. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Punctuation is also very not good, or rather bad punctuation really has an effect. If one of us asks a question and it, it is transcribed without a question mark at the end, again, it's quite jarring for a human reader. Anyway, so we, we expose these different variants of speech-to-text against these audio snippets. And yeah, we actually we found one of the variants we, we were testing was Google, for instance. And Google speech-to-text is coming out of a few different places, the YouTube ecosystem, the Google voice stuff. And of course, for the most part, you're still dealing with single speakers, or in the case of YouTube, you're dealing with multiple speakers, but typically there are visual cues as to who is speaking, so it doesn't really matter about identification. Yes. And what Google will do, it doesn't understand speech. It'll, it'll just drop it. So for instance, if someone speaks kind of quietly for a sentence or two, you'll probably not get any text out of it. And actually what we found through this video game was that human readers actually prefer text whether or not it's correct because they just like seeing the animation basically is our theory. So it actually, as we were testing, it didn't matter so much about the quote-unquote correctness of the transcription so much as it mattered about the denseness, the density of the transcription. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us, right, is that, well, okay, you know, if we're not confident about a word, put it out anyways, because at the very least, the human readers will say, okay, I, I know that they didn't say grapefruit there, but I do know that they did say a word, and just seeing it makes me feel better. Oh, I see. And I, I definitely agree with that, because I have seen those closed captions that are automatically generated, and even if it's, you know what the real word that they said was, but most of the words are pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as far as the gameplay for this game that you developed, what was the motivation for people to keep going and playing this? So we we did do like a, you know, do 10 rounds and then we'll we'll show you your scores against the against that of others. Mm, okay. And oftentimes that's enough. 
I actually, uh, Kelly and I developed a little game ages ago where um, we would display one movie poster and then two other different movie posters beneath it. And we would say, okay, is, you know, movie A more like movie B or more like movie C? And, and same thing, choose 10, then we'll show you the results against everyone else. And honestly, like, I saw someone play the stupid game for, like, three hours. Like, it was incredible. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, it it's also very interesting because gameplays don't have to be very complex. For example, Flappy Bird. I see it, and it's a very simple game, and it completely exploded in popularity, and people were playing it for days and things like that. So Yeah, you don't need to... The things that, that people will do just for a, a little bit of a hey, you did good at the end of it, are, are pretty surprising. And that doesn't always work, but especially for our purposes, it certainly did. did did enough anyways. Let's talk a bit about the technology. What have been the main breakthroughs that made the development of SignalFM possible? Um, so, yeah, definitely using a lot of pre-made packages, or rather pre-made. We're using Kaldi, Microsoft... Um, we're using a package called Liam, which is a retimer. And we're sort of chaining all this stuff together. Audiogram was obviously good, fine. We, we had actually spun up our own CSS HTML um, visualizer thing, but um, Audiogram is being worked on by a lot of people, so it's, it's convenient for sure. So the main idea is this culture of sharing technologies. Each company is sharing something. This enables other players to develop a product. Well, especially for a startup of our size, you just, you can't, right? You cannot write your own stuff completely. It's just not feasible. For us, our secret sauce is actually our pipeline, mm -hmm. which is, you know, we've got a pipeline now that's capable of, of handling hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio easily. And all the data and all the, you know, rigging together all this stuff. So it's less about the bits that you can see and more about just being able to handle this crazy quantity of data, basically. And after, for example, a podcast is recorded and it is edited, do you know if it could help? This is more of what you would think. If we look at the audio before it was edited, either by a person or automated look at the before and after audio files and then learn what sort of things are edited i will say that that's not our focus at this moment but it also is absolutely it's just another it's just another machine learning thing mm -hmm. right yeah and so, so yeah like we're gonna edit out i've got i've got the sniffles a bit right now and i don't know what your editing practice is but i'm guessing that you're gonna want to get rid of one or two of those mm -hmm. and i can tell you what a sniffle sounds like For sure. And so, yeah, the idea of backing this into a tool set like uh, Reaver, for instance, or, or Audacity, yeah, it makes sense. Now, whether or not the market makes sense to get into is a little bit of a different story. And I see that as something that we would do more as a, as a community outreach thing, say, than a way to make money. I saw a blog post about automated podcast transcription. And you've mentioned you used IBM Watson for the initial transcription. 
And some of the corrections were crowdsourced, like we said earlier. Were there any surprising findings on the things that had to be corrected? Was it more about the accents that you mentioned earlier? Yeah. I mean, what I will say is that the level of the state of the art is getting better much more quickly than I was expecting. I've seen significant improvements even over the time that we've been working with it. I think that the big finding really is that everyone is working on the short form transcription, which is to say short utterances by single individuals and tackling the punctuation and speaker identification thing is not something that we've really seen by any of the larger efforts right now. So it makes sense, but it wasn't something I was expecting going in for sure. And you've had several investors on board with the team with Signal FM. Yes. What was your investor pitch? Um, look how cool we are. Give us money. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things to keep in mind when making a successful investor pitch? You have to understand what investors are after, which is to say that you have to talk to some of them. But, or, you know what? Listen to some podcasts. <laughs> okay. Right? Like, l go listen to the Acquired FM podcast. Go listen to A16Z, which is... Um, the Andreessen Horowitz podcast, go listen to Jason Kalkanis, um, go listen to whatever, uh, go find someone to have some coffee with and say like, look, here's what I'm thinking. And you'll know when you have it by the way that someone's eyes really light up, right? And for the most part, what any good investor is looking for is, is it a good team? Are they going to give up? What's the size of the market? How are you going to address it? And do I believe in that plan? It doesn't have to be a perfect plan. You don't have to have everything figured out necessarily. But for me, at least, I've been running both large and small teams for a long time. I've, I've worked on both large and small teams, startups, you know, large organizations, everything in between, pretty much in software uh, my whole life. And what you really want from a direct report is, you know, hey, here's they come to you and they say, okay, here's what I'm thinking of doing. And you want to say, to them, like, look, I see this, this, and this problem with that. And ideally, they give you the answers to two of the problems. And for the third one, they say, I'll get back to you. And then they go, you know, figure it out and come back. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's basically the same with investors. You don't have to know everything, but you do have to show that you are interested in learning. Committed and that the team gets along with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Kim, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I'm really looking forward to the progress of Signal FM. Why, thank you. Yeah, this was a pleasure. I'm happy to do it anytime. Thank you. Thank you.